Well, we are thankful for Chris, are we not? Amen. Yeah, he has been a blessing. Continue just uh, rejoicing. All the things that he did, virtually every wall that you look around that's not brick, uh, Chris painted at some point, okay, the railings, um, even some of the trim out on the patio, children's ministry side, and there were so many details and um, requests and, and things that Chris followed through, and, and the Lord knows every single one of them. He, he watched you do it all for his glory and for the sake of the church, and as many of you know, uh, Chris lived with us for the course of the summer, and so we um, enjoyed that. Um, Victoria was very grateful because all the leftovers were, were gone, okay? Chris, um, I think this is going to be very bad for me. I think I'm probably going to gain like 10 pounds because now i got to eat the leftovers all by myself. Um, I don't know that Lydia's going to know what to do as she stands outside his bedroom door when his door was shut, just waiting for Uncle Chris to come out. Um, Loves, loves, loves Uncle Chris, and really has just been such a blessing uh, to have you here, Chris. And, and I can say this with sincerity of heart. I, I do hope that God calls uh, my son, uh, Liam, to himself, and that, that our little Liam would um, follow the footsteps and follow the leadership of someone like Chris McGrath someday, that, that he would become like Chris McGrath. I mean, we, we, we really do love you, and we're so thankful for you. And so, um, yeah, it's just been a tremendous, tremendous blessing. Well, I do want to just take a moment. I'm going to pray and ask God to bless our time in, in the Word today, and we'll get started. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look into the mirror of your Word, would you do the work that only you can do as we study it, as we reflect on it, and consider how you want it to impact our spiritual lives? Change us into the men and the women of God that you're calling us to be. You have saved us so that you could sanctify us. And you are sanctifying us so that we can give you glory in how we live. And Father, I pray for every heart here today, mine included, that your living and active word, sharper than any two-edged sword, would not fall on deaf ears, but that your Holy Spirit would bring us to a place where we're completely engaged and challenged and changed all for your glory. You gave us your very best in Christ. I pray, Father, that we can give you our very best for Christ as we continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of him. And we ask this in his precious name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, I would like to begin our time with what I believe are some pretty heavy questions. Are you ready for, for some heavy questions? Okay, can you handle them this morning? Not... Uh, you gotta, you got to be ready for these. These are, these are heavy questions. What is the testimony of your life? What impression does your life have on the lives of other people? How are our Christian lives interpreted through the eyes of other people? Perhaps you've heard it said that if your funeral was going to be held this week and the service was going to be the day after tomorrow, what would the testimony of your life be as your eulogy was shared? I don't believe that question really lends itself to reality very well because, number one, we're still alive. And two, our testimonies 
are continuing, right? They're, they're ongoing. And so if we start talking about our funerals, then our story is completed. The, the book is written. We can put the pencil down. It's stopped. But the reality is that we're still alive. And the stories of each of our lives and how we are being used to represent Christ are still being written. And I praise God for that. Our individual lives impact others. Our conversations, our interactions, our attitudes, our opinions have an impact on others, whether we see it or not. It is good and spiritually healthy to reflect on how our personal, individual testimonies are having an impact on others for the name of Christ. And what is unique about our individual testimonies is that collectively... The compilation of our testimonies provides a corporate testimony for our church. It does. All of us together provide a corporate testimony for our church. How we share our lives. How we serve each other. How we physically, spiritually, financially, emotionally care for each other. How we show up for each other when we're sick. How Meals on Wheels, just like that, gets called up. And before you know it, there's meals at your doorstep in hopes that we can help you physically be restored. How we protect and minister to one another reflects a corporate testimony of our church. And this is what I would describe as the internal testimony of the church. Believers caring for other believers with support and love. Well, there's also what I would describe as the external testimony of the church. And that is how we are to reach out to the lost and how we try to build relationships with those in our neighborhoods and in our communities. How we do our very best to care for those in need beyond the walls of our church. Maybe it is uh, supplying supplies for one of the local schools. Maybe it is providing uh, clothing for those at the homeless shelter or a food drive for those at the mission. Maybe it's supporting another ministry in the community that specializes in meeting certain needs that people have that open up doors for the gospel. And certainly it involves our mission work that there would be a dozen people from this church that would buy tickets and fly all the way over to the Czech Republic just for the sake of teaching people English and having the opportunity to share the gospel with them in the hopes of just making a disciple. Believers caring for unbelievers by being salt and light is an ex eternal testimony of the church. And today we're going to launch a new sermon series called The Testimony of Our Church as we begin our study of Titus chapter 2. And the opening 10 verses of chapter 2 allow us to see the connection of how our individual testimonies in Christ are directly connected and reflective of our corporate testimony as a church, which also reflects the greater work of Christ in the lives of us all. And this passage that we're going to look at for the next few Sundays, God provides instruction for everyone in the church. Older men, 
younger men, older women, younger women, we're all included. And I'll explain a little bit more how we're going to tackle the text after we read it together. Let's go to the living word. Please open your Bibles if you're not there yet to Titus 2 and join me as I read our passage together. And this is one complete thought from the Apostle Paul, by the way. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says this, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Well, here's how we're going to tackle this passage over the next few weeks. We're talking about the testimony of the church. And first we're going to talk about the testimony of those who are older and wiser. And then next Sunday we'll cover verses 4 through 6, which will involve uh, addressing the testimony of those who are young and teachable in the church before we finish with verses 7 through 10, which focus on being leaders and laborers. Okay? And though this passage provides specific instruction for those who are in, in certain seasons of life, what you'll see very quickly over the course of our time looking through this passage that is that there's a great deal of overlap that's going to bless and benefit us all. And so if you have a sermon uh, outline in your bulletin, you'll also see we try to put the sermon proposition in there for you every week, and it's this. The strength of your individual testimony reflects the strength of our corporate testimony. And by testimony, allow me to qualify that. I'm not talking about the testimony of salvation. I'm talking about the testimony about how God is at work in your life day in, day out, week in, and week out. That's what we're talking about. That's the realness. That's what God does when the relationship that is established through the gospel with him, he gets to work, right? And one of the first things that he does with us as a believer is he puts a shovel in our hands and asks us to get to work with him. We'll share more about that a little bit later. God wants you and I to see that our individual ongoing testimonies directly impact the testimony of our church. And he receives glory through both as he works in us and through us individually and corporately. And it's the very purpose of our lives to glorify God. Well, our passage is filled with treasure, so let's dig it out together. Last week, 
uh, we briefly introduced in verse 1 of chapter 2, and, and I, I shared, even going back to verses 15 and 16, that they function as hinge verses that open up our understanding to the rest of the book of Titus. And the false teachers on the island of Crete were trying to convince people that there was no correlation with salvation and how they live. Okay, That, they're, th- that those two are unrelated. And our study last week allowed us to see how the sufficiency of the gospel contradicted the false faith, the false purity, false thinking, and false relationship with God that these false teachers had. And now, in the remainder of the book, we're going to see how the supremacy of the gospel assists sound doctrine that leads to sound living. And this is why the Apostle Paul, again, starts out by saying what he said in chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And Paul was basically saying this to Titus. We know that there are false teachers who are teaching that there is no correlation between creed and conduct, between worship and work, between faith and obedience. But this is not what the supremacy of the gospel reveals. There's a direct connect with salvation and serving, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And the theme of sound doctrine introduced in chapter 1 is continued in chapter 2. Here in verse 1, Paul instructs Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Then again, in verse 7, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine. And a third time, in verse 10, showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect, which features the significance of the gospel as it relates to sound doctrine. And so this phrase in verse 1 needs our attention. Paul doesn't say speak sound doctrine directly or teach sound doctrine directly, but he says speak things fitting for sound doctrine. And this is what Paul goes on to share with Titus. Chapter 2 doesn't address what sound doctrine is so much as it reveals the character and the conduct that sound doctrine produces. And this takes us right back to our sermon proposition and the testimony of the church. The strength of your personal testimony has a direct impact and reflects the strength of our corporate testimony as a church. And Paul was letting Titus know that unlike what the false teachers are teaching, that a redeemed heart leads to redeemed living. And so now Paul shares some descriptions of what these testimonies will look like in the church. And he starts with the testimonies of older men and then provides testimonies for older women. Well, let's get started with our first point, which is this. The testimony of older men in the church. Who is Paul thinking of when he talks about these older men in the church? Is he thinking of men of age? Is he speaking of men who have a certain level of spiritual maturity? Is it a combination of the two? What is it? Well, in the ancient Near East, there was a tradition that established lives into seven stages over the the course of someone's life. And there was always disagreement on when 
these certain stages started and stopped. But here, Paul divides human age into just two stages. Older in verses 2 and 3 and younger in verses 4 and 6. And when one stage actually transitions to another stage is somewhat subjective. But the Greek word used here is a derivation from the same Greek word presbyteros, which is where we get our word elders. Okay, the, the men who are called to the office in the church. And we know from our study in the past about elders that there is no specific age designated to describe those who are older. But we know that it is speaking to someone who is obviously an adult in life, that they have life experience and they wouldn't be classified as being youthful or lacking life experience. And the ancient physician Hippocrates, uh, the Greek physician, he was the one who I think originated the seven stages of life. And the sixth stage is where he used the same Greek word presbytes, which is a cognate of presbyteros, which is a reference again to those who are older and, and mature. So presbytes, again, doesn't allow us to narrow in anymore on the specific age, but we do know that Paul had in mind that they would be men who were older and who had plenty of life experience. And then the apostle goes on to designate four qualities that are to be true of the testimonies of such men in the church. And there are spaces in your outline for you to write these in. Godly, mature men are to be temperate. And this is letter A in the outline. All of these testimonies are in the present tense and they reflect the habitual pattern of life for such godly men. And this word literally means holding no wine. Strictly speaking, it referred originally to abstinence. And all of the Southern Baptist preachers down in the Bible Belt said, Amen, because no godly man is ever going to be holding up a glass of wine. Sorry, I just had a flashback to my last four years of ministry down in North Carolina that there are some that would actually hold to such a view. Excuse me, such a view. The broader use of the term actually refers to self-control as it relates to worldly appetites and desires. And this seems to be the meaning Paul has in mind after sharing the testimony of the Cretans who were lazy gluttons, according to chapter 1, verse 12. They were a culture known for serving their flesh. My, how things have changed. Not. <laughs> right? Certainly we can relate. One commentator shared this. The temperate older man is able to discern more clearly which things are of the greatest importance and value. He uses his time, his money, and his energy more carefully and selectively than when he was younger and less mature. The supremacy of the gospel and God's spiritual growth in a godly, mature man's life moves him from a place of being drawn towards the things, worldly indulgences that are so prevalent in our world. And God even calls us not to love things in this present world, nor the things of this world, right? First John 2, 15. Well, how do we obey this command? I'm convinced that the answer comes through being 
temperate. As we mature, God tempers our thinking toward worldly desires. He helps distance us from our youthful lusts, especially. And when we were young, we can think that somehow, I, I, don't, I had this experience when I was young, and maybe uh, I'm not the only one in the room, right? But if only I had this body, or if only I had this group of friends, or if only I had this hairstyle. And there's a, there's a day where I was kicking a full head of hair. I'll have you know, okay? Right? But I've matured beyond that, okay? No longer carries the same weight and, and significance. If I only had this car, if I only had these clothes, if I only had these friends, if I only went to this school, if I only if I only, if I only. And godly, mature men can help younger believers see beyond these worldly diversions. Their faith has brought them to a place where they know that these things really don't matter. And they can help shepherd those who are tempted to think that they do. Godly, mature, older men are to be testimonies in the church to help disciple and provide counsel for those who are younger, who are still vulnerable to chasing the futile things that this world throws at them. It is the deceptive nature of the world which is filled with advertising and marketing schemes, always appealing to the lies of the eyes, the lies of the flesh, the lies of pride. Evil lusts are always lies. They always promise fulfillment, but in the end, they always leave us wanting. And when you think about the word temperate, you should think about the word tempering, okay? That's what should come to mind, tempering, not tampering. Because the world will throw a ton of things our way and encourage us to tamper with the things of this world. All you have to do is walk into Lowe's and you see the next big thing, the next big appliance. Come over and, and tamper with the next ginormo washer and dryer, okay? You got to have this. You got to walk into Best Buy. To, Best Buy, whoa, dangerous ground right there, huh? Right? The next big thing is there. The next big TV. The next big electronic device. And you got to have it. The next big iPhone 29 is out. Thinking well into the future, okay? It's, it's coming. iPhone 29 is coming. It's already in the works. I'm convinced of it. But you, you, you got to have it, right? You got to have it. And if you don't get it, do you know what will happen? Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And that is why the Lord wants us to be tempering our worldly desires. And when worldly things consume us, we get stuck inside of them. You, you'd be just like Jonah in the belly of the fish. No escape, right? Until you acknowledge God. That's how he got out. God wants us to acknowledge him, and he wants us to temper these things. He wants us to temper their influence in our lives. All the things 
that this world continues to throw at us. And it's not going to get any better. They're constantly thinking of, of ways, right? The world is constantly trying to, be, to strategize to, to, to reach us so that they can bombard us with all of these things that they're convinced that we must have. Are you consumed by anything right now? You personally? Is there something that's got you consumed? Is it, is it, is it going from the, we only have three bedrooms and we need four. And again, sometimes there's, there's practical reasons. I mean, you have five kids, you might need four bedrooms. (laughs) Preach. But, but sometimes I think just, you know, it can be going from the two-car garage to the three-car garage. Is there something that you got to have or else? Well, 1 John 2, 15 and 16 can set you free. It can set you free. Godly, older men are to serve as testimonies in the church by being temp- temperate. There's a second testimony of older men in the church. Godly, mature men are to be dignified. This is letter B in the outline. And this word describes that which is worthy of respect or honor. A person who is noble or revered. It isn't a reference to someone who is haughty or high class in terms of being dignified. Okay? They're a man who is grounded in character. His maturity in Christ is much like that of an elder in 1 Timothy 3, 4, who's called to manage his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And the Greek word here in 1 Timothy 3, 4 is a word that can also be translated gravity. Again, the emphasis on grounded character, being a man of substance, being dignified. He finds no humor in perverse or vulgar joking. Corrupt speech is far from his lips. What he believes in, how he lives aligns well. He also maintains his dignity by owning his own missteps and leads out in reconciliation when sin arises. His gospel-changed heart constantly reminds him of who he represents and the importance of maintaining his dignity for the sake of Christ. One pastor shared this insight. I appreciated this so much. He said, Paul is not saying that it is inappropriate for older, uh, inappropriate for older men to have fun. But he does mean that fun is to be kept within bounds. Older men are not to play the fool. There is to be a seriousness about them that reflects the seriousness of life and the seriousness of the things of God. You who are older men are to conduct yourselves in ways that befit your years. If you do, you will be men of weight, worthy of respect and a strength to your family and congregation. And all God's people said, Amen. And in our culture that focuses so much on entertainment, it's easy for us to fall into conversations that are directed towards sexual humor or joking, perverse or inappropriate conversation. And being dignified demands awareness. And Paul uses the same word in 
Philippians 4.8 when he says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, that word honorable is the exact same word right here. Whatever is dignified, he concludes that verse, and we all know how it ends. Think about those things. Think about those things. doesn't mean that you can't have fun, but it does mean that we know that life, there has to be some level of seriousness as it pertains to life. And dignified older men recognize this. They know the dangers also of where dwelling on dishonorable things leads. And later in verse 7, we're going to see that Paul prescribes this as a goal for Titus himself. There's a third testimony of older men in the church. Godly, mature men are to be temperate. They're to be dignified. And thirdly, they are to be sensible. This is letter C in the outline. And this word will sound familiar because it's the same word that is used to describe an elder or an overseer back in Titus 1.8. It is the Greek word sophron, and it means sober-minded, prudent, self-controlled are, are some of the definitions for it. And it's used in Titus 1.8 to stand in contrast of someone who is characterized as being pugnacious or quick-tempered. And this word or form of this word is used four times in this chapter alone. Verse 2, in reference to older men, they're called to be sensible. Verse 5, in reference to younger women. Verse 6, in reference to young men. And one last time in verse 12, in reference to all believers. Okay? Just in case the older women somehow thought maybe they were off the hook there. It's for us all. Verse 12 also provides an appropriate gospel context for us to consider. The self-control, the soundness of mind that is being emphasized here is not a product of human achievement, but grounded in the grace of God through the power of the gospel. And it's fair to say that all of these character qualities, every single one of them, to be temperate, to be dignified, to be sensible, that, that is what God saves us to, right? Because our lives were the opposite. In our flesh, we actually would fight for the opposite. And we fought against God as unbelievers. And then when we're saved, we fight for God. Amen? We fight for God. And there's an accumulation of spiritual growth and maturation that will take place that allows us, by God's grace, through the gospel, to be a great testimony to those inside and outside of the church. And this is to be especially true of older Christian men. And it's this kind of maturation that Paul has in mind when he says older men are to be sensible. There's also an aspect of prudence with being sensible. Oftentimes our flesh can encourage us to speak before thinking. And being sensible means being timely with our response. A great proverb, Proverbs 20, uh, 25.11 says, Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Right? An aptly word spoken. Sometimes one of the worst things that we can do as a believer is to respond in the moment. Being sensible helps guide our timing. In communication, 
in the premarital class, I talk about three T's of the tongue. Timing, tone, and temptation. And that's true in marriage, and those T's are true for all of us just in everyday life. We, we see the value, and one of the first things that I bring up is the timing. Because many struggles that take place in marriage communication are related to poor timing. And being sensible means heeding the command that we're given in James 1.19 that says, But this you know, my brethren. And I love how James just assumes that we know it. We know it. This you know, my brethren, but everyone must be quick to listen and slow to speak. A godly older man is to be sensible. Why? Because he knows. He knows by his own experience what happens when that spark starts, right? And the whole forest, the whole house can be set ablaze, right? He's to be sensible. And most of us who are married can rewind the game film of an argument that we may have had with our spouse or someone in our family. And we can look back and we can see if had we been sensible at a certain point and resisted the flesh, that things wouldn't have escalated. And that the God-given grace of being sensible can put the majority of communication fires out. And it can. Well, there's a fourth and final testimony that Paul shares in, in this uh, verse. Godly, mature men are sound. And here's a word that isn't very common in our English vernacular anymore, but this word has come up a lot when Paul has been talking about sound doctrine in his letter to Titus. And we said that the Greek word translated sound is where we get our English word hygiene, right? And so when we said, when we were talking about sound doctrine, we were talking about what type of doctrine? Somebody, somebody for my own spirit, encourage my heart with thy response. What are we talking about with? Healthy. Thank you. I heard it. I heard it. Somebody's tracking with me. All right? It, it, it's healthy. Right? Healthy is what is, is being reflected here. And it's an active participle which points to continual health and soundness. And this, is, this word was used in verse 1 to describe sound doctrine. And here it's used to describe the resulting sound character that sound doctrine produces. And this is letter D in the outline, by the way. And this is... This participle is used to describe three nouns that follow it in the verse, which are one, two, three under letter D. Godly, mature men provide a testimony of regularly being, one, sound in faith, two, sound in love, and three, sound in perseverance. The word faith I've shared in the past can be referring to the objective body of truth, otherwise known as the faith, or it can be referring to someone's subjective trust as a believer. Okay? And it appears that this is what Paul has in mind right here. Older spiritual strong men can serve as great testimonies because their personal faith and trust in God has been tested. And they're able to encourage other believers because their faith is sound and strong. And they know that God will lead them through whatever trial that He ordains and is brought their way. 
and they can lead others to follow suit. Okay? Great men of faith. And there are so many things in life that I think that can cause us to, to, to fear and the accumulation of the wisdom that God blesses older, older spiritual men to have can really go a long way when you're facing something and you're uncertain about how it's going to work out. God uses such people to bless us, especially as younger believers. And again, this is why discipleship is so, so very important. Well, godly mature men of the faith will also be sound in love. And the Greek word for love here is the most familiar, agape. And agape love represents an active love. Such men of faith provide testimonies of loving people with their actions. And agape love, I've mentioned this before, it's, it's defined for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, otherwise known as the love chapter. And us loving out of the right motives is the very reason why Paul in those opening three verses emphasizes and, and features the supremacy of love. He, he, he says the words, and I have them right here in my notes, so I can read them to you. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all the mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And this is the supremacy of love reflected in the very heartbeat of God and the gospel. John 3.16, for God so loved. 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that he laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And what is Paul's point to Titus? I believe it's the same point that the Apostle John, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was making right here in 1 John 3. Sound love leads to sound living. And the pure motives of God and love led him to take action for us as believers. It, it, it moved him. And the supremacy of the gospel driven by pure motives in Christ moves us to action as well. And this is Paul's point as he shepherded Titus back in Titus 2. He encouraged him to let the Cretan believers know that faith and life go hand in hand. Faithfulness yields fruitfulness. Creed produces conduct. And he was warning them, don't listen to any false teaching that somehow there's a contradiction. Those who are godly and mature see the connection. They are sound in faith. They are sound in love. And finally, they are sound in perseverance. And you'll notice that this is a different trio than we're used to hearing, right? Faith, hope, and love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. The greatest of these is what? What was it? Love, right? So interesting. I was just meditating on that even over the course of my study. It was like, why, the, why, are we, why do you say the greatest of these is love? Because faith and trust. And then I was thinking about it for just even from God's standpoint. Does God have faith? Does God need to hope? Does God love? 
I can say, I, I know for certain on that one, the greatest, the greatest of them is love. And rather than faith, hope, and love, here the Holy Spirit led Paul to record faith, perseverance, and love. And Paul used the same grouping of terms in 1 Timothy 6.11 when he encouraged Timothy. And I think he did so because he saw in Timothy as he was discipling, he saw where he was going. He saw how God was at work and how God was maturing him. And he anticipated Timothy maturing into these things. And godly mature men provide testimonies of being sound and perseverance because life is hard and presents many challenges. One commentator shared, they exhibit, and this is a reference to godly mature men being uh, persevering and being sound in perseverance. They exhibit the ability to endure hardship, to accept disappointment and failure, to be satisfied despite thwarted personal desires or plans. They do not lose heart when things do not turn out their way they had hoped or expected, but have perfect confidence, quote, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. End quote, Romans 8, 28. And when I think about the testimony of the older men in our church and how um, the, just, the, and we're a young church, are we not? Yeah, we're predominantly a young church, but we got a few seasoned saints that I rejoice in. Bill was sleeping up here on the front row, by the way. <laughs> Bill, I'm wrapping it up here in two minutes. You're going to be fine. Just kidding. I'm thankful for Bill. I'm thankful for Jerry Blau. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for you men. You men serve as testimonies to me. Your, your faith has feet. Or if you're Albert Lee, your faith has wheels on the car because you drive like 1,500 miles to come to church each and every work, week and you serve. And I praise God. And I rejoice that, that, that my testimony as I grow and mature as a young preacher, as a young elder, that I become like you men. I really do. And I think that you serve as a great testimony for us. And those of us who are kind of in the, 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 the middle of the road, right? We, we, we may not know whether we're younger or older anymore. We kind of wish that Paul had that third stage maybe. But um, we were just caught somewhere, right, in the middle. I rejoice that we have people within our church to look to. And, and you know, we, we are all headed... That nobody's getting younger, right? We are all looking, and we can look to men like that and follow their example as they follow Christ, as they're faithful to the gospel in their life and living out the gospel in their life. And we can look to you, and I'm greatly encouraged. Greatly encouraged. Wow. I said here in my notes, all of, you, all, all of the older men in our church serve faithfully, and I resisted the temptation to mention any of them by name on purpose, okay? Okay? Okay. No. It is no secret that we're a young church with a lot of growing families, and the many young men that we have, and that includes myself in this category, we are thankful to be able to look forward to what God's calling us to, how he's continuing to grow, that these 
characteristics would be part of our life. In my hand, I'm holding a few books. They're, they're biographies of faithful Christians. And these books contain compilations of their testimonies, of how God used them, and their faithfulness to take the gospel to the nations. And I doubt if any of them ever anticipated that there was going to be a book written about them. They were so busy doing what God called them to do. I could be wrong, but something tells me that they were pretty focused. And likewise, I don't think it would serve us well to be thinking about whether or not there's going to be a biography written about our life. But can I tell you something? Can I tell you something, friend? Every single person that can hear the sound of my voice, you are writing your book. There is a book being written according to the faithfulness as, as you walk with God and you uh, respond in obedience and as, as, you, as you are actively engaged with Him and being used by Him for His purposes, they tell a story. Marcus Denny is writing a book who from America moves their family to Czech Republic and doesn't know a word of the language. Not only that, but tries to preach it, preach in a church in that language. Who does that? And there's stories of, of men of faithfulness, just like Marcus, and, and they're writing our book. And my question is for you is, what is the content of your book going to be? And we rejoice in Christ for all that he's done for us in our salvation. And it's nothing that we can ever pay back, but we can make an impact for his namesake. We can be actively engaged. And our individual testimonies, these individual testimonies, were compiled and they were teamed up and you can even read about Jonathan Edwards and and um, it's uh, Brian, I want to make sure, David Brainerd, it's just the story, David Brainerd died at 29 years old. Jonathan Edwards was able to capture so much about his life and his ministry to Native Americans, the Indians. And so, when we think about this passage and the journey that God's going to take us on as we reflect on these testimonies, um, I, I get excited about how God is going to use our church, how our individual testimonies, how we are going to rise to the occasion as individuals and, and team up. And I can look around and I see servants, and I'm so thankful to be a part of a church where I can see the testimonies of people like Jonathan Lynn. And Art and Denise. And David and Silvana. I'm thankful. I'm encouraged by that. And I know you praise God, and it's not like, oh, look at me, look at me, look at me. Nobody's doing that. But we're, we're, we're writing it together, and I'm excited. I'm excited to see how God is going to use the testimony of our church.
Well, as I mentioned at the beginning, and I hope I communicated it effectively throughout the sermon, the testimony of our individual lives reflects the corporate testimony of our church. And it certainly reflects the testimony of Christ and his work in our lives. Well, we didn't even get to point number two. And I'm taking the counsel because I'm a young, teachable man. Um, we'll talk about young, teachable, uh, those young and teachable uh, two Sundays from now because next week we have to talk about older women. And we can look about that. Older women are up next week. We'll look forward to that time together. All right, please pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are kind. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to look at Titus 2. And I pray that we can take these words to heart, that we would um, in every way consider um, where you're taking us, how you're shaping us, who you're calling us to be, and how with the stewardship as you allow us to grow weekly, that you will give us more, that you'll use us in great measure. And Father, I just continue to pray as I've been able to witness you at work through so many lives here in our corporate body of Cornerstone. I pray that you would help us to be mindful of the reality that we are on a running clock and that we can make our lives count and that if we're sensible and sober-minded that we'll see the need to make the most of the time because the days are indeed evil. We praise you that we have in a promised, a promised eternity of rest and that we'll be able to serve you with joy and gladness in all of eternity. And we pray that you'll continue to allow our hearts to be engaged and that we'll be able to look to you even on this side of the cross that whoever serves is to serve in the strength which you supply. Again, we praise you and thank you in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.